Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a doctor and nurse walk us through what to expect if you have a hernia. It is a problem and it's a very, very common uh, surgical problem. There is about 800,000 cases uh, of hernia repairs done in the United States every year. It's almost a million. A physician scientist shares why he hopes to test a heroin vaccine on humans. So the first thing I would say is that this is not a silver bullet. It would be one tool among many other tools that would need to be uh, used by um, people with substance abuse disorders and the medical professionals who care for them. And we'll hear what it was like for an upstate faculty member to appear on Jeopardy. I didn't start studying in earnest until I got the call that I was going to be on the show. So that was end of November, beginning of December, about two months after I auditioned. All that, plus a selection from The Healing Muse, right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll explore a vaccine for heroin addiction. Then, we'll review the appearance of an upstate faculty member on the TV show, Jeopardy. But first, a doctor and nurse explain what to expect in terms of diagnosis and treatment if you have a hernia. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. It's not until you or a loved one develop a hernia that you need to find out all you can about diagnosis and treatment and outlook. Well, here to help us with that are two people from Upstate's Hernia and Abdominal Wall Reconstruction Program, the director, surgeon, Dr. Mustafa Hassan, and nurse navigator, Shauna White. Welcome to you both. Thank you for Thank having you. us. Let's begin with the basics. What, what is a hernia? Basically, by definition, a hernia is a protrusion of an organ outside its um, home cavity. So a protrusion of organ and, and outside the the abdominal wall usually is what we describe. The most common hernias are the inguinal hernias or the groin hernias, that's what people are familiar with. But there are other many, many, many kinds of hernias um, in which uh, usually intestines or a piece of fat from the inside of the body would protrude outside. When I say protrude outside, doesn't mean that people are walking around with the intestines showing, but it's actually still covered by skin and fat and part of the abdominal wall. Is it a problem when things get rearranged like that? Does it cause problems? Well, it's a very, very, it is a problem, and it's a very, very common uh, surgical problem. There is about 800,000 cases uh, of hernia repairs done in the United States every year. It's almost a million, so it is a problem. It poses problems to the patients, um, definitely, and sometimes it becomes really complicated and requires urgent intervention. However, in other cases, people can walk around with their hernias not knowing they have it and does not cause any uh, complications. Are hernias sort of just a, a factor of age that um, things kind of get, I don't know, start falling apart as you get older? And <laughs> Not or? really. Um, I mean, hernias can happen in any age groups. Oh. Uh, some children have hernias, some infants have hernias, and some older people have hernias, so it's kind of a an equal opportunity uh, employer. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything that brings them on or makes them happen? Well, there are different kinds of hernias. Some of them um, are almost congenital, and some of them uh, are almost there, and something happens that makes them obvious, like lifting a heavy object or gaining an excessive amount of weight, or just it happens with time. Others are precipitated by, uh, for example, a previous operation, and we call those incisional hernias, and these are pretty common, and they're actually a focus uh, of our interest, that somebody will have an operation on the abdomen or anywhere, and that scar is a weak point through which organs can push and protrude. That's called an incisional hernia. Okay. Well, let's talk about the role of the nurse navigator um, before we get into sort of the treatment. Shauna, um, where along to the process do you get involved? Well, I take all the intakes. Um, so anyone that thinks that they have a hernia or is being referred by another physician for a hernia, um, I get in contact with the patient and uh, begin setting up appointments with them. Um, and then from there, at their appointment, they see both myself and Dr. Hassan, and I follow them throughout their entire journey with us. 
Okay. So pretty much everyone's going to encounter you probably first by phone. Yes, probably. typically. Um, so how do you, how do patients, you mentioned a referral from another doctor. Is that how patients find their way to you? Um, some do. Uh, we don't require a referral from a physician, though. Um, many patients he- are at home and think that they have a hernia um, and basically just Google upstate hernia and uh, they get our direct patient line and I'm the one that answers that phone. Uh, so I, from there, set them up uh, with an appointment. So what would uh, what would the symptoms be that would cause someone to think, maybe I have a hernia? How would you... So this usually depends on the kind of hernias. Uh, Let's talk first about the most common ones, which are hernias in the groin, uh, followed by hernias in the belly button. People basically either have pain or a bulge or both, usually a bulge or a bulge associated with pain. Sometimes they're able to push that back into the abdominal cavity, but it pops back out as they lift something heavy, they cough, they sneeze, and so forth. These are common hernias. They're common in the groins. Uh, and also common around the belly button. Other hernias, like the incisional hernias, uh, are usually uh, preceded by an operation and a big scar, and the scar becomes a little weakened, and people gradually start feeling a bulge or actually seeing those bulges. And sometimes also these are associated with pains. And sometimes people know they have a hernia. They had it fixed before, once or twice or three times, and then... They, they are familiar that it's coming back sometimes. So do all hernias need surgery to repair them? That's a great question. Um, there is no one-size-fits-all for hernias as well. Most of them do require surgical repair, but that depends on the patient condition, situation, and uh, the size and the symptoms of the hernia. But I would say the majority would require repair. Okay. Is it simply a matter of putting the things back where they go and then sewing so they don't bulge out again? I mean, that's oversimplifying it. But it's quite accurate to the most part. But uh, again, it depends on the kind of hernias. So for example, uh, and the size as well. So hernias in the groin or known as inguinal hernias, for example, they're usually fixed uh, by pushing the contents of the hernia back in, putting a piece of mesh to reinforce it and closing the muscle on top of it. And that's the principle of repair nowadays in most of those hernias, whether they're inguinal hernias or incisional hernias. Uh, The only thing that we think is uh, gaining popularity now is the use of minimally invasive robotic surgery in fixing inguinal Mm. hernias. It is moving very fast and becoming the preferred uh, repair uh, among patients and surgeons as well. Does that uh, shorten the amount of time that the surgery takes? It is uh, associated with less pain, earlier recovery, and actually we think the chances of hernias coming back are less if you use this uh, robotic approach, at least for the inguinal hernias, the groin hernias. Okay. Well, tell me a little bit about from the patient's point of view, and maybe Shauna can step in, how do you prepare someone for hernia surgery? What do you tell them to expect? Well, it really depends on a a few factors, Um, what type of hernia the patient has, um, whether it be like a simple robotic inguinal hernia repair. Um, I do give them expectations you're going to be sore the next day or two after, but our patients feel pretty good within, you know, two days and start to get back to normal uh, with those repairs. However, the bigger repairs... um, there is a little bit like the abdominal wall reconstructions. There's more um, preparation on my end and more patient education uh, that has to be done before, during, and after. Um, just because we, we want to optimize those patients, uh, make sure that they're at their best before going to surgery. Um, we do always talk about uh, smoking cessation. Um, because these repairs are not what they could be if someone continues to smoke. And typically we don't, Dr. Hassan can, typically we'll ask them to stop smoking a few weeks before these repairs. Otherwise, uh, I do kind of follow them through with a lot of patient education. And I do try to give them realistic expectations from what I've seen and what I've learned from uh, Dr. Hassan. Are these outpatient procedures? 
Some of them are. Usually the, the inguinal hernias are outpatient procedures, but the big abdominal wall reconstructions are definitely not, and the patients would be in the hospital for about three to four days. Of note that our team is not just me and Shauna, but there are other surgeons and plastic surgeons who are involved in this uh, process as the complexity uh, increases of fixing those abdominal wall hernias. So some of the simpler ones are, like you said, outpatient, where the Correct. patient would go home that afternoon or whatever. Correct. But then some are more involved and probably take hours. Yes. The big abdominal wall reconstruction can take uh, between three to five hours sometimes, sometimes two hours, but depending on the, the complexity and the patient. What are some of the um, complications that you have to tell patients about ahead of time? Well, again, this depends on the, the which hernia that we're talking about. So with the inguinal hernias, which are the groin hernias. Some people have a little bit of a swelling, and sometimes there is pain after the operation. And then the, the thing that's really specific to hernias is that hernias can come back. Uh-huh. In the minority of the cases, uh, hernia can come back even after repair and needs to be fixed again. As for the abdominal wall reconstructions, these are a little more complex, and uh, still there is a recurrence rate, which means the hernias can come back. But most of the complications are usually related to the wound itself in terms of uh, fluid accumulation, sometimes wound infections, sometimes a little bit of a hematoma, which is blood accumulation. Most of them actually resolve without uh, interventions. Well, you mentioned mesh, and I wanted to ask about that because we've all read about, you know, problems with mesh. What, What is it and why is it used? So meshes are synthetic tissues. I mean, there are many kinds of meshes. Some of them are synthetic. Some are biologic, derived from tissues. Example for that is uh, pig skin, human skin, uh, cow skin. Which are used in a lot of different medical um, applications. Correct. And some are synthetic and some are bioabsorbable, which means uh, over about a year and a half, the mesh is replaced by the human tissue in form of a scar, which is strong. SCAR reinforces the repair. They are very commonly used, and uh, a good repair usually entails a mesh uh, placement. Regardless of the advertisements on TV and all that, uh, it lacks accuracy. A, a good hernia repair usually is uh, it usually involves a mesh placement. And Shauna does that part of education with the patients as well. And, um, you know, she gets asked a lot of questions about the meshes, and she always explains that yeah and um just even providing a sample mesh for patients to see and feel kind of uh puts them at ease um and just kind of having this conversation with them uh to kind of clear up some of the discrepancies that they may see or hear on tv um is important because it's a good tool do you have to choose a different type based on a patient that's an excellent question i think most of the problems uh, arise from using um, a wrong mesh and the wrong patient. So there's a process, um, depending on the patient and depending on the hernia, uh, the best outcome is, of course, matching the best mesh to that specific patient. So it's a judgment call based on experience and based on the situation that we're facing. But the mesh in itself is, is a good way to repair a complex hernia. Which mesh? In which patient, that's the question that requires expertise. Does it, is it like a piece of fabric that you receive as the surgeon and then cut to your shape that you need? Or? Well, yeah, actually some of them are like that, but others are synthetic. They're basically made of polypropylene. These are the synthetic meshes, which is, uh, people call it, used to call it the screen. It's like a, a grid of woven uh Fishing line, basically, if you want to simplify mm -hmm. it. That's the synthetic meshes. Other meshes, you know, are made of different material. I'm assuming they probably have different, um, whatever, success rates with different types of mesh in terms of not having the hernia redevelop, right? Correct. And in an infected field, like somebody has an infection already, we use a specific Mm -hmm. different kind of mesh. Otherwise, we'll not achieve that right, correct, you know, achievable uh, desired outcome. All right. Well, let's talk about recovery. I mean, once you're past the few days after surgery, um, what is life like with a hernia repair? Do you have to always be delicate with that area? Or, I mean, what is, what is it like? So the aim of this is to restore normal life and normal okay. activities. 
The reason why we fix a hernia is to bring people back to do what they would like to do and they want to do. There is no point doing that operation, tell people, well, you cannot do this or that for the rest of your life. Then what, what did we do? Could they have left him or her with a hernia? So uh, people usually resume their activities gradually. Um, we avoid heavy lifting in the early periods after the operation. Heavy lifting differs from one, is relative to the patient, differs from one person to another. But the aim of this is to restore normal lifestyle and normal activities. Okay. Once uh, the patient's done with the surgery and done with the follow-up, do they have to come back and see you again to keep make sure that everything's in place? Actually, we do have a very uh, organized follow-up process and uh, a quality program that we're just about to join. It's a national quality program. Maybe Shauna is... Basically, um, she's in charge of that. Yeah. yeah. So currently, we're working to join um, the America Hernia Society's Quality Collaborative. Um, and this will allow us uh, to track the data of um, all of our hernia patients after they consent to this. Um, and it will just help us improve our program and um, improve our techniques and make sure we, we have the best program for the patients around here. And we do see patients uh, on a scheduled visits um, and definitely in a year after the operation and they have quick access to us if there's any problem anytime. Well, that's very good to know. Thank you so much for being here. My guests have been Nurse Navigator Shauna White along with Dr. Mustafa Hassan who directs the Upstate Hernia and Abdominal Walk Reconstruction Program at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, just how would a heroin vaccine work? Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Could a vaccine help people who are addicted to heroin? Upstate researchers are part of a team working to develop just such a vaccine. Here to tell us about it is physician scientist Dr. Stephen Thomas, a professor of medicine and of microbiology and immunology at Upstate. Welcome. Thanks. It's nice to be back. So this seems like a novel way of tackling the problem of heroin addiction. How would, how would it work? So the first thing I would say is that this is not a silver bullet uh, at all. Uh, it would be one tool among many other tools that would need to be uh, used by um, people with substance abuse disorders and the medical professionals who care for them uh, to get them into recovery and to help them uh, sustain recovery. So the idea of how it would work is that the immune system is very good at understanding what is foreign and what is not foreign, um, whether it's a bacteria or virus or something of that nature. And the scientists are trying to leverage the immune system um, to fight heroin addiction. And so the way that this would work is that um, when you inject heroin, the heroin gets metabolized in the body, and then the metabolite of heroin crosses what we call the blood-brain barrier, and people get high. And that's the reason they inject. They're trying to get that kind of psychoactive effect. What the scientists at the uh, Walter Reed Army Institute of Research and uh, the National Institutes on Drug Abuse have done is that they have developed a, um, uh, a protein uh, that is similar to in structure to the active metabolite of heroin. And so when you, and they've put that into a vaccine. And so when the individual gets vaccinated, the body recognizes this protein as foreign and says, I don't want this here. I'm going to develop an immune response against that so that the next time I see it, I can clean the body of it. So the theory would be you get vaccinated, you develop an immune response to this protein. And then let's say you were to use heroin sometime down the road, uh, you would inject heroin, it would get metabolized and the body would say, wait, I've seen this before and I know it's not supposed to be here. And it would send antibodies uh, to that metabolite, bind it, 
and now it can't cross the blood-brain barrier, and so you would not get the psychoactive effect of, uh, of the heroin. So it would take away um, the uh, incentive to uh, the high, basically. It would take that away from uh, uh, the equation. And, and again, so hopefully it would be one tool that could help people uh, either enter recovery or sustain sane, their recovery. So you could potentially, you would you could still take heroin, but it wouldn't have an effect. Right. So that's the theory. Okay. And that's what the, what we call the preclinical. So that's what the, uh, the data in animals uh, seems to indicate. Is that how all vaccines work? Do that, do all vaccines like work on the immune system, setting it up so that it reacts to? Yeah. I mean, that's the principle of, of vaccinology is that uh, you can, again, leverage and harness uh, the power of the immune system and the ability of the body to recognize foreign versus non-foreign um, uh, to um, either eliminate or mitigate the impact of, of that uh, pathogen, or in this case, the, uh, the toxin really um, with the heroin. So, and, and it's being leveraged. I mean, we haven't even started to truly understand in a comprehensive way, the power of the immune system. Um, and so we're starting to get there. And so all these immunotherapies that are being used by neurologists to treat multiple sclerosis, or, uh, I mean, a ton of work is being done in, uh, cancer. Um, again, harnessing the immune system to go and fight, um, uh, malignancies. Uh, so I think we're on the front end of this, uh, and it just makes sense that it would now be applied to, to substance abuse. Sounds like it. Now, would this work on people who've never tried heroin as well as people who maybe are already addicted to heroin? Yeah, so that's a good question, um, and we don't know. So we don't know until we actually do the the clinical studies. But I'll, you know, I've been asked this question before. I don't think that this is a vaccine. I don't think this will end up being a vaccine for people who do not have a substance abuse disorder, because you have to remember one of the one of the. Uh, uh, every vaccine has potential risks and potential benefits. And one of the potential risks of this vaccine, and we don't know if it's a real risk, but it's a potential risk, is that it could not only prevent um, the effect of heroin, but it could prevent the effect of other opioids, opioids that are licensed by the FDA to be used in the management of pain. So for example, um, you know, if this cross-reacted with morphine and the vaccine works, then it's possible that that individual could never use morphine for pain relief. Now, there are plenty of other, um, you know, opioids and synthetic opioids that might work, but this is an ethical question that has to be, um, you know, that has to be discussed and deliberated. So, you know, that's a potential, that's a potential downside. But, you know, the, the, the scientists who have developed this vaccine candidate um, went through, uh, great pains and did a lot of uh, due diligence on trying to make um, a compound that, or a vaccine that um, is very specific in, in its effect and does not have a, a lot of uh, a, a cross-reactivity. Because we would like, um, you know, we would, we be, and we believe that this is the case, that this vaccine would not interfere with the use of pharmacologic agents like you know, Vivitrol or um, Suboxone or things that people are currently being using to try and um, uh, uh, help people get into recovery and sustain recovery. We don't want to eliminate those those options. And so, um, you know, it's uh, it's <laughs> it's funny. You know, it's a, a a couple paragraph article in a in a paper, but it 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 represents. Um, years and years of work that has already been that's already been done by the basic scientists and uh, sure. yeah. So do we? Uh, is there a speculation whether it provides immunity for life or if it needs a booster years later? Yeah, that's a great question, um, and that'll only be answered by doing human studies. Yeah, I mean, most uh, the way vaccinology sort of works uh, is that. Um, uh, typically, what you'll do is when you'll establish uh, sort of proof of concept in animal studies, and then you the plan that you put in place and the plan that helped you define what worked in an animal study, you'll then carry over uh, into your initial human studies. But once you start doing those studies, the plan can change. And so it's possible that uh, you know what required four doses in a mouse, may only require two doses in a human. And when, you know, what required 
no boosters in a mouse, you might have to give a booster in a human. But all of that will need to be um, defined in uh, the clinical development of of the vaccine. And, and but what I can say is that you know the scientists at Walter Reed and NIDA um, they are actively looking at those questions in um, in the mice and in the rats. And so they have a a preliminary idea of uh, y- you know the of, of what the timeline might be for the duration of uh, quote-unquote protection uh, with the vaccine. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Stephen Thomas. He's a physician scientist at Upstate who is working on a heroin vaccine project. So where in the process of development is this right now? So if you want to put vaccine development into two different uh, phases, um, and these are big buckets, but <laughs> one would be preclinical. So that would be the test tubes and beakers and uh, animal studies uh, and manufacturing of, of the vaccine. And then the other big bucket would be clinical development. So those are the studies in humans that, if you're uh, fortunate enough, ultimately lead to a license by, by the FDA. So we are still in the preclinical phase, but we believe that we're getting close to that transition point. And so um, the the uh, Department of Defense, so the Walter Reed Army Institute of Research and the Henry M. Jackson Foundation and SUNY Upstate applied to NIDA for a grant that uh, has is aligned with those two phases. And the grant that was awarded was the preclinical phase, and that would basically finish up some animal studies, manufacture the vaccine, uh, start the discussions with the FDA um, so that we can ensure that there is a uh, uh, an objective group looking at um, the information, and they can provide us the uh, approval to go ahead and start testing uh, testing in humans. And the hope is that that transition will occur sometime in 2020. Oh, it's pretty soon. Yeah, I mean, in the world of vaccine development, uh, we deal in years. We don't really deal in uh, in in months. Um, and so, yeah, to to have uh, to have a first in human clinical trial. Uh, you know, 18 months away, um, we're, we are planning, we're actively planning now and planning for success. So in the mice that it's being tested in now, have you learned anything? Does, has it been proven safe in the mice or have you seen anything so far that is significant? Yeah. So, um, so it's mice and rats. And if, if the vaccine candidate is not demonstrated to be safe in, in those, uh, um, animal models, then it, it'll never see the light of day. It'll never even get even close to, to human testing. So, so that's kind of uh, the fact that we're having this conversation. It's kind of a given that it was, uh, that there were, there was no, there were no safety signals that were apparent in those animal, animal studies in terms of its effects. So yes, they do uh, the types of studies that they do is they will, they will vaccinate the mice and rats. They will um, draw small blood samples. They will look to see if those mice and rats developed an immune response to the vaccine, which they have. Then they'll do, um, and then they'll uh, take, uh, they'll do what they call challenge studies. So they'll take heroin um, and um, show those mice and rats uh, heroin. And, and then they will measure different endpoints to see whether the vaccine group is different from the placebo group. In terms of behaviors uh, and how they respond to the uh, the challenge of of heroin, and so the data thus far shows that uh, yes, in fact, there is a difference between those two groups. There is an immune response difference between those two groups, and it is building the case for um, it's that it's time to transition this to uh, uh, to human uh, human testing. So what you just described with the mice and rats, is that how it would be done in humans if you do a trial here at Upstate? Yeah, so that's another that's another great question. Uh, you know, there are a lot of ethical issues that are sure. still out there surrounding this. And um, there have been groups that have been working on vaccines for, uh, you know, um, nicotine addiction and Oxycontin addiction and cocaine and heroin and, and other things. But it's still a relatively young field. And so there's still a lot of questions out there that require what I'd call, uh, uh, it's not my term, but uh, uh, you know, democratic deliberation, right? There needs to be an open conversation with various perspectives and various groups talking about, about this. So to get to your question specifically, do we intend to challenge humans with heroin after they've been vaccinated? Uh, the answer is no, <laughs> I don't intend uh, 
to do that. But there are other there are other options. In the end, what will have to happen is we will make a proposal to the FDA. We will make a proposal to the independent ethical review committees, and we will let objective, non-involved groups who are expert in reviewing these sorts of issues uh, take a look at it and and tell us what uh, you know what they think. Because ultimately, you need to be able to prove that it works. Right. So. No, that's exactly right. Um, so. Yeah, I mean that's the the FDA. They license, uh, you know, they license vaccines that are safe and that um, have a clinical benefit and do what they're supposed to do. And how we prove that this vaccine will um, help people with substance abuse either enter or sustain recovery, um, I don't think that that plan has been finalized yet. And um, you know, we have a lot of great ideas <laughs> about how we could do that. Because um, the other element is we want to we want to proceed as quickly as possible because, um, you know, we're on the, I, I think we're on the front end of the opioid epidemic. I don't, certainly in the central New York region, in Syracuse, in central New York, uh, but as a nation, I think we're on the front end of this. I don't think we have reached the peak because it already uh, seems like a crisis now. Oh, it is absolutely a crisis. It was, uh, you know, a slight tangent, um, you know, because we've spoken before. I came from the Army. So, you know, I was uh, in the Army for 20 years, and I came here two years ago. And that was the single most shocking thing to me was that, you know, 10, 15, 20% of my uh, patients, the people that I was seeing in the hospital were young people, 20 to 40 years old, who had horrible uh, infectious disease complications of of substance abuse. And I did not have that experience, uh, you know, down at, uh, down at Walter Reed. So, uh, it was shocking to me and I, it, and, you know, my observation, but I, I think my colleagues would agree. Um, it's not getting better. It's not, it's getting worse and the numbers are increasing and not, uh, and not going down. So, so I think that there's a sense of urgency, certainly regionally, there's a sense of urgency, but nationally there is a sense of, uh, uh, of urgency to try and get a di- as many tools as possible out there uh, um, to see if we can uh, see if we can change the epidemic curve on on this problem. So let's fast forward and take a huge assumption that this works as you expect mm-hmm. and that it that it's that it's effective. How do you decide who gets it? Would it become? Would you envision that it would become one of the childhood immunizations, or do you have to be more selective? Because you mentioned this is for people with substance abuse disorder, mm-hmm. and we don't necessarily know who that is at uh, birth, anyway. Right? right? Yeah. So, I mean, the short answer is I don't know yet who would most benefit from uh, from the vaccine. We we make assumptions, we make educated guesses about who this might best benefit, um, and we use the basic science information that we generate. We use the animal data that we generate. We use the human testing data that we generate. Um, And ultimately, we would go to the FDA and we would say, we believe that this vaccine is safe and has a clinical benefit in this population. And here is the data to support that. And the FDA will look at that and say, we agree with you. and you'll get an indication. You'll get what they call a label that ba- that gives you the left and right limits of whom you should use this vaccine. Uh, you know what populations you should use the vaccine. So I don't, you know, my opinion right now. But again, it could change. We haven't even entered clinical trials yet. But my opinion right now is that this is not a vaccine for people who do not have a substance abuse uh, disorder. I do not believe that this is a um, a prophylactic. Uh, vaccine at this point. I believe that this is a vaccine for people that have demonstrated that they have a substance abuse issue, um, that it's specific uh, to heroin, and that it would be a tool to help people enter recovery or sustain recovery because it would take off the table um, the effect that they get from, you know, from injecting uh, heroin. The I don't think the tool would work without um, being linked up with a psychiatrist or a psychologist, uh, it probably it may or may not be um, effective without uh, pharmacologic therapy. Uh, at at some point uh, in the process, it would not be effective probably without the support of um, groups like 
Narcotics Anonymous or AA or other support groups. Um, yeah. So again, I think it's, it is a tool uh, that will be in a larger toolbox, but it could be a very, um, a very powerful, powerful tool. But I, I think it, it's, it's not going to be a routine childhood immunization. It's right. It's going to be uh, more targeted. It, for yeah. Yeah. I think it'll be, I think it'll be targeted um, to people that have already declared themselves as having, uh, you know, having this disease. So if it were to work for heroin, how easy is it to tweak it to work for other addictive substances or mm -hmm. practices? Yeah, yeah, no, that's a great question. So, um, and that's kind of a, that's a relatively recent trend in vaccine development in general is trying to develop what they call platform technologies. So uh, things that can be, things that can be plug and play, for example. So if you imagine a, you know, a two a two prong uh, electrical outlet that has a USB port. Anything that has a U that can be connected to a USB port could be charged by that device, sure. right? Mm -hmm. uh, could be a phone, could be an iPad, it could be uh, whatever. And so these platform technologies are trying are would basically be the two prong outlet with the USB port, and and in this case, and and so this is um, what we believe, uh, and and this was the goal originally of the of the Walter Reed and NIDA um, scientists was to create the platform. And then heroin was the first, um, you know, was the first uh, um, pathogen, if you will, that they're, that they're putting on this platform. But yes, the idea would be that you could plug and play other things, fentanyl, heroin, uh, Oxycontin, I mean, other things. Cause you know, one of the things that people, another reason why this would just be a tool and not a silver bullet is a lot of people who have substance abuse disorders, they really have polysubstance abuse disorders. So they have alcohol dependence. They might have uh, cocaine dependence along with heroin, along with other, you know, other things. So, um, yeah, so the, you know, hopefully the idea would be, and there are other groups that NIDA has funded to work on some of these other, oh. these other problems. Um, so at some point, you know, maybe we start doing polyvalent uh, substance abuse so vaccines. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So, yeah, maybe maybe someday we'll get to that point. But there are folks out there that don't think that this <laughs> that the vaccine against heroin could actually make um, a dent. But if you know if if this is safe and it does what it's supposed to do and it helps ten percent of the people who are addicted to heroin, just because the denominator is so large and getting larger, I think that it would have a huge public health uh, impact. So why did you get involved with this project? So, you know, sometimes people ask, you know, what, as I mentioned, I came from the military. We didn't really have this as a problem, at least in the patient population that I saw. And so they asked me, you know, what, what is the most surprising thing to you about this uh, epidemic? And, and one of the things that surprises me most is, uh, and, and I fell into this category as well, um, is that the assumptions people make and the biases that people have um, about uh, addiction and specifically heroin addiction. And so everyone, if you, if you were to say, close your eyes and think about a heroin addict, you would have a specific image. People who made really bad life decisions and people who, uh, yeah, are unemployed and people that have come and, you know, come from broken homes and, and, you know, the, all these patients that I see, uh, you know, I talk to them and I ask them about how did you, get here, right? And these are folks that ha come from all races, all religions, all socioeconomic backgrounds. They come from intact homes with highly educated, highly successful parents. They come from broken homes. They come from people who, yeah, they may have made bad decisions and transitioned from, you know, uh, alcohol to uh, uh, marijuana to other uh, substances. But they also are folks that uh, maybe had a traumatic event in their life. They were prescribed a lot of opioids by their physician, and then they were cut off. And so I, I just uh, that has been one of the very kind of humbling lessons to me as a as a physician, and one of the reasons I'm you know passionate about this project uh, is that I still don't think people understand um, that this is everybody's problem. This could uh, be them. Absolutely, and. You know, if you walked into your office or classroom or school or community center or church and everyone was going to be honest for a second and you said, I want everyone, anyone who's been impacted by this problem, raise your hand, I think people would be in awe. I think they would look around and say, no, not 
not you. You don't fit <laughs> my biased view of what a, mm-hmm. you know, of what a person is. And I think that when I talk to patients who have ended up in the hospital now with these um, life-threatening, uh, life-threatening infections in many cases, um, that uh, it contributes to their sense of, uh, I don't know, lack of worth. It contributes to their sense of, of helplessness, of self-loathing, of all these things, which is sort of not the position you want to be in when you're about to confront a huge issue, you know, uh, in your life. And so um, I'm just hoping that your listeners <laughs> will will maybe think about it a little bit more. And um, and I hope that and you know the people that I work with, physicians and nurses and everybody else, I hope that they will start thinking a little bit. Uh, a little bit differently and not not think they are so remote uh, from this problem because because they're not. Well, it's very exciting research and I appreciate you talking about it. And I hope that you'll come back when we're closer to clinical trials here in Syracuse one day. Absolutely. My guest has been physician scientist, Dr. Stephen Thomas, a professor of medicine and microbiology and immunology at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next, on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, did you catch the Upstate professor who appeared on Jeopardy? Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. The answer is she's an upstate medical university professor in bioethics, public health, and preventive medicine who appeared on Jeopardy last week. If your reply was, Who is Rachel Faby? perhaps you were watching. She's back from California where Jeopardy is recorded, and today she's with me in the HealthLink on Air studio. Welcome, Professor Faby. Thank you for having me. So, what made you want to be a contestant on Jeopardy? I've wanted to be on Jeopardy for as long as I can remember. Um, when I was a baby and I was I would cry, my parents would put me down in front of Jeopardy because something about the blue glow of the screen would make me stop crying. Um, and I've told the story a million times, but as soon as Wheel of Fortune would come on, I would start crying again. <laughs> so growing up, we would always turn Wheel of Fortune off immediately. But, um, and then you know, I tried out for the teen tournament when I was in high school. Didn't make it, uh, but I did get into college writing my admissions essay about not making it. Your experience trying. Oh, yeah, cool. yeah. And I, I've tried out. I take the online test pretty much every year since. So so talk to me about the process of getting on the show. It starts with an online test? Yep, there's an online test that's offered every few months, maybe every six months. I don't know the exact timeline. Um, but it's a 50-question online test that's timed. You have about eight seconds per question, and then it moves on. Uh, and if you do well enough on that, and they never tell you what the cutoff is, but if you do well enough by whatever bar they're using, you get entered in some kind of lottery to get an audition. So if you uh, if they pull your name because you did well enough, you'll you can get an audition in one of usually like six cities around the country. Um, so I this year I got an audition in Philadelphia, and that was in September. Um, so I went down to Philly just to, like a random Tuesday in September. Uh, in a hotel ballroom, and you take a written test to make sure that you didn't cheat on the online test. <laughs> and then you do a mock round with the buzzer where you have a Jeopardy board and you're playing against two other people. Uh, and then they do you know, the mock interview where they have the note card, and it's like, oh, I see here that you climbed Mount Everest last year, and you, <laughs> and you talk about it. I didn't climb Mount Everest. <laughs> but. Wow. Well, now, once you knew that you had a good chance of going on the show, um, did you start s- studying, or how do you prepare yeah, so I, I didn't start studying in earnest until I got the call that I was going to be on the show. So that was end of November, beginning of December, uh, about two months after I auditioned. And I, you know, to prepare, I watched a bunch of episodes every day. It's on, you can find them online now. So I would sort of cue them up and play along with a, a clicky pen that they give you at the audition, actually. It's a Jeopardy pen with a little red button on it so it kind of looks like a buzzer. So I would, you know, stand in front of my TV and what is... Because they want you to practice. Because they want you to practice, yeah. It's just to try to get the timing down and get into a rhythm of answering the questions. Um, so I, I did that. I also um, got an almanac, like the 2019 almanac, which has 
a million facts in it. I had no idea. I read Ken Jennings' book, actually, as part of my preparation as well. And he talked and he's about... The record holder for being on Jeopardy! 74 games. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so I read his book. And in the book, he talks about, you know, doing the standing in front of the TV with the pen, um, but also that a lot of the other contestants had almanacs with them in the green room. And I was like, what? An almanac? Isn't that just, you know, GDPs and, and weather? And so I, I opened one. And it's got, you know, every Oscar winner ever, every war ever, you know, just a million, like everything you could possibly need to know fact-wise, wow. which I had no idea. So, and actually the game before I played, so I watched a bunch of games being recorded. There was a category that was the 2019 Almanac. And I looked over at my dad and he was just, he was just laughing at me in the audience because he knew I had the Almanac with me. <laughs> so what are your best categories, do you think? Or what categories were you hoping to... Excel in. So I'm I'm kind of a generalist. I don't uh, I'm not good with sports, and I am not great with geography. I spend a lot of time studying geography, um, but the categories that I love on Jeopardy are the wordplay ones. So if there's something in quotes, if there's um, like the before and afters, I love that stuff. Um, I do the crossword every day, so those those categories are kind of similar to crossword clues. Tell me what happens during commercial breaks. What's what is it like when you're there on the show? They film the episode kind of in real time. You know, it's obviously a month earlier, but they'll stop for about as long as the commercial breaks are um, and come up and sort of touch up your makeup. They bring you water. They take the water away. They make sure that you're doing okay. And, you know, the production staff is always around making sure you have everything you need. And they're really, really fun, cool people. How were you able to not be nervous? Because you looked cool as anything on TV. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I was so nervous. Um, <laughs> you know, I had a suit jacket on and then I had a sweater on. You couldn't see I was totally sweating. Um, and, you know, they come up and, and mop up your forehead in between if you are sweating. Um, so I was I was very nervous for sure. So you went to you had to fly to California for the taping. Um, your father went with you? Yep. My dad came so, out and a, a couple of my friends from high school, actually, who live in California, came down for the taping as well, which was really nice. So they were able to be in. Is there like a studio audience? And There is. And I, apparently for the first time, they're showing the studio audience at the beginning of the episode. They do kind of a pan shot. And I, I could see my dad. It was really cute. <laughs> oh, did you do uh, any other like touristy things while you were there? Or was it pretty much go there and you're focused on Jeopardy? Yeah, well, it was the middle of the week. So I, I had to teach and, and come back. So I sort of I went and, you know, spent the night before studying game theory and wagering in my hotel room, which my dad <laughs> made fun of me for. But it, it came in handy in my first game. And then, yeah, the, the first day of filming was all day. And I didn't end up playing, but I had to stay in the studio. And then the second day, you know, I, I played two games got lunch with my dad, and then we went to the airport. So it was a pretty packed trip. It was also raining the whole time. I was excited to get out of Syracuse, go to L.A. in January, thought it would be warm, and it, just the weather was awful. So you studied wagering, because in I the did. first show, um, well, let's let's talk about this. So this is at Final Jeopardy, where the contestants wager their winnings. Your clue was, born in 1866, he has been called the Shakespeare of science fiction. You answered, who is Asimov? <laughs> yeah, which is like doubly wrong, because he's not only not British, he was also born about 60 years later. So it was a very wrong answer, but it didn't matter because I had wagered zero. You wagered zero purposefully, strategically, yep. because you were pretty sure it was wrong? No. So you wager when you see the category. The category was British authors. And I was like, ah, you know, I'm kind of comfortable with British authors, but it didn't matter what the category was. Looking at the scores, so the person in first place had to wager what she did in order to beat the person who was in second place if he doubled. So, you know, I was doing all this math and I was like, yeah, I only I can only wager zero because I need them both to get it wrong. Because even if I wagered everything and got it right, if they also got it right, I would lose. So the only my only chance of winning was if they both got it wrong and I wagered zero. Wow. You had to be <laughs> thinking about all of that on top of the British authors. <laughs> yeah, I feel like it's a, an, an aspect of the game that gets kind of neglected is studying the math of Final Jeopardy wagering. You know, you can study as many world capitals as you want, but if you're not prepared to you know, do a lot of calculations at the podium, it, you know, it's not necessarily going to be to your advantage. Well, do you think this experience has changed your life in any way? Absolutely. I mean, this has been a dream of mine forever. And, and now I, I get to move on to my next dream, which is cool. Got to figure out what it is first. <laughs> well, thanks so much for telling us about this. This is very interesting. My guest has been Jeopardy! contestant and assistant professor Rachel Faby. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon. 
editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Joyce Holmes McAllister retired after 30 years at Cornell University. She has kicked off her eighth decade in high style, publishing two chapbooks, Before We Knew from Foothills Press and Return from Yellow Sofa Press. She has two poems in this issue of The Muse. The first is titled The Loss and describes a common ailment as we age, the diminishing of our vision. You mourn how darkness overtakes the light against your will before you even know. Old objects, once well seen, are lost to sight. It happens gradually. You feel no fright. Life seems to keep its usual pace and flow. You mourn how darkness overtakes the light. Of course, there are those items which look right and words to search before they fade and go. Old objects, once well seen, are lost to sight. If magnified through glass, words may invite, but waning vision still remains your foe. You mourn how darkness overtakes the light. No sky in view, but moons sail on in flight, well hidden from your straining eyes below. Old objects, once well seen, are lost to sight. The love of words you saw still holds you tight, remembrances that pull you to and fro. You mourn how darkness overtakes the light. Old objects, once well seen, are lost to sight. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, a new look at end-of-life issues. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes and other podcast sources by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.